It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. It was really striking to see all the posts on Twitter over the weekend either paying tribute to or remembering some of our fallen heroes in honor of Memorial Day. Uh, it was uh, interesting to see those stories. And, you know, rather than the usual pictures of barbecues and being at the beach, and I thought that was a nice way to honor the holiday. Uh, if you were checked out over the weekend at the beach doing barbecues or just sort of unplugged, uh, if you didn't get a chance to see me Media Buzz, the segments are now online, Facebook, Twitter, elsewhere. Uh, you can check it out. I want to start now with story number one. And this is not just a sports story. It's a story about mental health. It's a story about celebrity. It's a story about Naomi Osaka. We talked about this briefly at the end of the program on Sunday. I mean, she's one of, if you're not a big tennis fan, as I am, she is one of the most successful female athletes in the world. She's the number two ranked uh, women's tennis player. And she caused a stir, and I was very rough on her. She caused a stir by saying that when she got to the French Open, she was going to just completely blow off the obligatory press conferences that players have um, where reporters get a chance to ask questions. And she said, you know, I, I'm just going to skip it. It's not good for my mental health. And, you know, I'll pay the fines because it's part of the rules that you got to talk to the press. And the fines were nothing to sneeze at. In fact, after she blew off the first two news conferences at the French Open, she was fined $15,000. Now, that's a rounding error for her. And my main complaint about this, and I've always liked Naomi Osaka, and she gets mostly positive press, so I didn't really understand what the beef was. Uh, my main complaint was this. If you're a pro athlete and you are making all this money, not just from your big-time um, salary playing on a team or in the case of an individual sport like tennis uh, for your own efforts, golf same way. Um, the press builds you up. The press makes you a celebrity. In the case of Naomi Osaka, who, who was born in Japan, the press makes her a worldwide celebrity to the point that she made more than $50 million last year in endorsements. This is beyond any of her prize winnings on the court. And if you are willing to... Um, become so famous because you're very, very good at what you do, hitting a tennis ball, then I think to just say, oh, I'm not going to talk to reporters or reporters ask questions I don't like. I'm just going to go on my Instagram and talk to my over 2 million followers. You're missing the point of why you get to make all this money. It's because the press builds you up. It's not just the television coverage of the matches. It's you know, all the profiles and all the so stories and the segments that what has made, in just three short years, this 23-year-old superstar a household name around the world. And that's why you get to uh, um, be a spokeswoman for Nissan and all these other big endorsement contracts that she has. And I thought, you know what? Uh, this seems like a real snowflake move. If you are uh, tough enough to compete at the highest levels of professional sport, then you're going to be intimidated by a room full of reporters, seriously? And I talked about this on the podcast on Friday because I thought, you know, not just as an affront to the press, but I think it was an affront to professional tennis. Well, since then, the French tennis officials got really angry, said this was a phenomenal error. The World Tennis Association said this was unacceptable, uh, said that she had to start doing press at the French Open, raised the prospect that she would be ejected uh, from the competition in France, and that she might be barred from future Grand Slam events. That's really serious stuff. All because you don't want to sit in a room and talk to reporters for a few minutes? But then, late yesterday, Naomi Osaka pulled out of the French Open. 
in the face of all this criticism, in the face of all this pressure. And she spoke openly for the first time about suffering from depression. And she posted this long um, statement on Instagram saying, I think now the best thing for the tournament, the other players, and my well-being is that I withdraw so that everyone can get back to focusing on the tennis going on in Paris. I never wanted to be a distraction, and I accept that my timing was not ideal. My message could have been clearer. More important, I would never trivialize mental health or use the term lightly. The truth is that I have suffered long bouts of depression since the U.S. Open in 2018, and I have a really hard time coping with that. Now, that, of course, is a game changer, so to speak, um, and it has caused me to completely reevaluate. Now, I still think she should have talked to the press. In fact, after her first round match, which she won, she did talk to an on-court interviewer, and then she talked to the Japanese broadcaster, Wow Wow, which she has a contract with. So she's willing to talk to a reporter, you know, when she's in effect getting paid for it. But nevertheless, the, the, to make that admission such an excruciatingly personal subject that she suffers from depression, I think has, cast, has caused everybody to view this in a different light. And she's a very private person. She does very few interviews with Western players. But she's at the same time, she's sort of outspoken. She just likes to do it on her terms. So as part of this Instagram statement, she did say, um, I want to apologize, especially to the cool journalists uh, out there. And the press, the tennis press has usually treated me very well. So it really wasn't about getting grilled at press conferences. It really was about something much deeper. Now, first of all, just on a human level, leaving sports aside, you know, suddenly you're an international celebrity you're at the top of your chosen professional sport, you're making $50 million a year, and you're depressed, it goes to show you that fame and fortune doesn't, you know, something we should know by now, doesn't automatically confer happiness. And, you know, being at the top of a highly competitive industry does have its own pressures. Uh, she says she's an introvert, and it's just hard for her to do public speaking and all of that. Now, what she's referring to when she talks about the U.S. Open in 2018, this is the first time I really focused on her, and I thought it, she showed tremendous grace under pressure because that was the tournament um, in New York, the U.S. Open in Flushing, where she beat Serena Williams after Serena Williams kind of self-destructed um, and got assessed penalties. And finally, uh, you know, in effect... She lost the match because the penalties included taking points away from her. And the story was all Serena, 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 Serena meltdown. Suddenly here's this newcomer at, what, the age of 20, who's now the U.S. Open tennis champion. But, you know, what, what she accomplished there by staying on her game was phenomenal and completely overshadowed by Serena's meltdown, which and I like Serena Williams, but, man, she just lost it. So Osaka's sister, Marie, uh, said, you know what? She plays poorly on clay surfaces. And the French Open has a clay surface. And she knew reporters would ask about that. Look, it's part of their job. So she wanted to, quote, block everything out by not talking to reporters and be able to stay focused. And look, part of the deal of becoming a big-time athletic star is that you got to deal with the press. And don't take my word for it. There was a kind of a split of opinion but other tennis stars were, were, you know, while expressing sympathy for her, uh, Rafael Nadal 
said that without the press, without the people who are normally traveling, writing the news and achievements that we're having around the world, probably we will not be the athletes that we are today. We wouldn't have the recognition that we have around the world, and we will not be that popular. No? Yes, Raphael, you are absolutely right. Match point. You nailed it. Uh, Serena Williams said, look, I feel for Naomi. I want to give her a big hug. Uh, dealing with the media has actually made me stronger. There have been times when I haven't enjoyed doing it, says Serena. But everybody is made differently. I am thick. Some people are thin, referring to the thickness of your skin, obviously. But then, because Osaka is a black tennis player, she's gotten uh, support from people around the, uh, the sports world and the political world. In the sports world, Steph Curry, for example. In the political world, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Kamala Harris's niece, Mina. Uh, they all praised her and for speaking out about this. And it reminded me, reading the coverage, reminded me that last year, at something called the Western and Southern Open, she pulled out of her semifinal match. And she said that as a black woman, I feel that there are more important matters at hand uh, than watching me play tennis. And she wore those masks with the names of different police victims emblazoned on the mask. So it's not like uh, Naomi Osaka is afraid to take a stand uh, or generate controversy, but apparently she just doesn't like being in a room full of reporters, particularly if she's playing on clay surfaces. So now I think the story has turned. It's kind of amazing that she pulled out of the French Open, um, and she says she's taking a break from tennis. So, you know, a couple weeks after that is Wimbledon. Uh, is she going to play Wimbledon? We don't know. And so you have to have sympathy for her, despite her fame, despite her fortune, despite what had seemed to be a seemingly uh, cavalier attitude toward the press, um, to speak publicly about something that's so, so, so very personal. And I think it's good, ultimately. Uh, she said, look, my message could have been clearer. I was a distraction. But I think it's good for people to understand that no matter how great an athlete you are, you've got to deal with these off-the-court or off-the-field pressures. And that Naomi Osaka, at a relatively young age, you know, became this international superstar, and now she has kind of outed herself, I guess you would say, to talk about depression, which affects people of all walks of life, uh, no matter how much money you have, how successful you have, or people who are just you know, ordinary, you know, hourly wage workers, all can suffer from depression. All right, let's move on to number two. I talked a lot last week on the air on the podcast, in my column, about the Wuhan lab leak theory, which suddenly there's been just this complete and total sea change. Because as you heard me talk about at length, for more than a year, the mainstream media blew it off, ignored it, mocked it, ridiculed it, said it was a creation of Donald Trump, said it was um, you know, conjured up by the right in order to blame China. And as ABC's John Carl said on Sunday, you know, just because Donald Trump says something doesn't mean it's not true. And then, in part because of a Wall Street Journal story and other circumstantial evidence, now all the media are having to acknowledge that this at least uh, is plausible. It could be true. It's not proven. The evidence is only circumstantial. But no, nothing is proven about the origin of COVID-19. China not cooperating with any of the investigations. Uh, and we may never know for sure what happened. Um, but I was really struck by uh, Ross Douthat's column in the New York Times in which he talked about the larger meaning of this. And I want to share some of this with you. Um, he talked about, for example, a lot of this has taken the form of media criticism from contrarian liberals. 
like Matt Iglesias and Jonathan Chait of New York Magazine, one of the few publications that did take the Wuhan lab theory seriously while lots of others were poo-pooing it. You know, you had the New York Times and Washington Post literally running uh, headlines. If somebody like Tom Cotton talked about the Wuhan lab, said this was a conspiracy theory. It was a fringe theory. It was debunked, according to Vox. Uh, And now suddenly it's been undebunked, according to Vox and everyone else. And so it's very funny now for me to read the stories that are like, well, the Biden administration, President Biden says he wants, you know, a full review in 90 days by the intelligence community. And, you know, scientific consensus is changing. Well, Maybe, but basically the theory didn't change and there's not that much more evidence than there was a year ago. So when these stories come up and the press doesn't acknowledge its own role, that this was deemed to be crazy town by the press itself and it just acts like it's a passive observer, I hate that because there's no owning up. Again, this hasn't been proven, but it is plausible. And now finally, news organizations are taking it seriously, but it's acting like, you know, nothing to see here. Yeah, yeah, we didn't cover it much. That's because scientists were not really taking it seriously, and now they are. All right, so back to Douthat's column. He talks about uh, how National Review, you know, has covered this and others. I will leave it to readers, says Ross, to consider how a similar pressure might manifest itself in other areas, from the 2020 to 2021 murder spike to the recent rise in anti-Semitic violence, where journalists might wish to avoid making concessions to conservative interpretations of reality. Uh, Throughout my career, I've written about, and sometimes the right is all up in arms about something, and the the left-wing media mock it, and then it turns out to be true. But he says, let me look at this. One change to mainstream journalism in the Trump era was the impulse to tell the reader exactly what to think, lest by leaving anything ambiguous, you gave an inch to right-wing demagogy. It was not simply enough to report Republican politician X said conspiratorial-sounding thing Y. You also had to specifically describe the conspiratorial thing as false or debunked misinformation, says Douthat, in a way that once would have been considered editorializing, so to leave no doubt in the vulnerable reader's mind. I'm very skeptical, he says, that this achieved its intended purpose. Uh, But even if it sometimes did, It also created expansive pressures to describe more and more things without any ambiguity or shading and judge more and more right-wing claims preemptively, which is only a good rule for the truth-seeking profession if you assume the day will never come when Tom Cotton has a point. Uh, He says that the liberal writers he mentioned think that the most important takeaway from the COVID origin debate is... The media critique. I don't know if this hypothesis will ever be proven, says Jonathan Cheney. Look, he may be right. But, says Douthat, if we, if, if we never figure out the truth of COVID's origins, the dangers of media groupthink will be the only lesson we can draw for absolute certainty. But if we could find out the truth, and it turned out that the Wuhan Institute of Virology really was the epicenter of a once-in-a-century pandemic, that revelation would be a major political and scientific event. And he's so right about this. First of all, to the extent, he says, that the U.S. is engaged in a conflict of propaganda and soft power with Beijing, that's a pretty big difference between a world where the Chinese regime can say, we weren't responsible for COVID, but we crushed the virus, uh, and a world where we, basically this was their Chernobyl, except their incompetence and cover-up sicken not just one of their own cities, but the entire globe. So that's right on all those points, you know. 
Um, the media have to be less telling readers and viewers what to think and acknowledging for the possibility that something might seem far-fetched may not be completely 100 and totally percent wrong. I, I, I'm not saying, you know, the world could be flat. I'm not saying things that have obviously been proven beyond the shadow of a doubt. But we did not know for sure where this virus came from. So you look at this story now. A uh, prominent scientist on Sunday added his voice to the growing number of experts calling for a full investigation. And that includes Joe Biden. Uh, this is a guy named Peter Hotez. He's a professor at the Baylor College of Medicine, leading expert on the virus. He was on Meet the Press Sunday. He said there's going to be COVID-26 and COVID-32 unless we fully understand the origins of COVID-19. He said conclusions about the virus, uh, how it emerged, were, are absolutely essential in preventing future pandemics. He says, look, I don't expect any uh, cooperation from China. I think we've pushed the intelligence as far as we can. We need to do an outbreak investigation looking at how this spread in a 6 to 12 month period in Wuhan and the surrounding province. Well, for that, you might need some cooperation from Chinese authorities. That is the thing. Former FDA commissioner under Trump, Scott Gottlieb, was also out on Sunday uh, saying on CBS's Face the Nation, China could provide evidence that would be exculpatory here, noting blood samples and lab workers and strains in the virus. They have refused to do that. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three, Michael Flynn, uh, who had been charged criminally, Donald Trump's first national security advisor, uh, all had to do with his conversations with the then Russian ambassador. Well, he made some news over the weekend. He was at some event, conference in Texas, in fact. There were a lot of QAnon supporters there. And he was asked, what about the coup in Myanmar? Could that take place in the United States? And here's what Michael Flynn, former White House National Security Advisor, said at this Dallas conference. And the video went absolutely viral. Somebody from the audience says to Flynn, I want to know why what happened in Myanmar can't happen here. And the crowd cheers. And Flynn says, no reason. I mean, it should happen here. And Flynn, you have to know, I, I once met Flynn, he seemed like a really sort of jut-jawed ex-Marine type, which is exactly uh, what he is. Um, and he, uh, especially after he got in legal trouble, remember he was pardoned by President Trump. And since then, he's totally embraced all of the, you know, the election was stolen rhetoric. And here he is at this conference saying, it should happen here. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um... And by the way, retired four-star General Barry McCaffrey, uh, who was on MSNBC, this said, this is harmful. This is putting the country at risk. I've never heard anything like this probably in the last hundred years. Maggie Haberman, New York Times reporter, says Donald Trump is privately telling people he will be reinstated by August. That somehow so much fraud will be found, even though it hasn't been found yet, uh, in the 2020 election that Biden will have to, and Jill will have to pack up and leave and Trump will be reinstalled as president. Uh, if that seems rather far-fetched to you, I don't want to call it a conspiracy theory, but you've got some company. So now, it took several days, but Mike Flynn has now made a statement. Let me be very clear. There is no reason whatsoever for any coup in America. I do not and have not at any time called for any action of that sort. Except we have the video, and you kind of did. And if you hadn't meant to say that, you would have put out that statement 20 minutes later. Instead, you, it took several days. 
And Michael Flynn, look, maybe he misspoke, I don't know, uh, finally deciding to correct the record uh, after all of the blowback. All right, number four. This is a perfect example of how, you know, we can you know, Twitter can get all hysterical over a single tweet. So, the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, did something really awful and terrible and horrible. She tweeted that people should enjoy the long weekend. Pretty outrageous, huh? That's all she said. And by the way, on Sunday, Vice President Harris posted a tweet honoring the troops on Memorial Day. But because she had the temerity to say, enjoy the long weekend, and let's face it, it is a three-day weekend for a lot of people in America, many of whom care about Memorial Day and some of whom just forget about Memorial Day. So she got hammered on Twitter. Why? How can you say the long weekend? Where is your patriotism and all that? Completely, totally made up outrage. I mean, I'm just going to call it what it is. So one of those jumping on the VP is Nikki Haley, who is, one, the former governor of South Carolina, two, the former U.N. ambassador of Donald Trump, and three, would very much like to run for president in 2024 if Trump doesn't run. And so she was out there uh, scoring some points, and she called Harris unprofessional and unfit. Unprofessional and unfit for office because she told people to have a long, enjoy the long weekend. Now, Nikki Haley then posted her own Memorial Day tweet, a tweet about the troops, but then she turned around and wrote another holiday post with a picture of her son. She said she was looking forward to spending time with her son. Would that be like enjoying the long weekend? So then she got hammered by the left. And it's just this endless cycle, and it's utterly meaningless. Uh, look, there can be some good debates on Twitter, but when you want to pounce on somebody out of context because they say, enjoy the long weekend, I want to be with my son, it just shows you that people have too much time on their hands and many people are so partisan that they will jump on anything. Now, if a politician or athlete or any public figure says something really stupid or offensive on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or anywhere else, then it's fine. Go after them. You don't have to denounce them as unfit for humanity, but you can criticize. But this just seems like a completely drummed up kind of thing. Speaking of China, story five. Uh, China said yesterday... It will now allow all married couples to have three children. Now, if you don't know the backdrop here, this seems really weird. And by the way, we talk about, you know, people say, we don't have enough rights in America. And, and uh, you know, people who support the Second Amendment say this is a totalitarian society and you're coming after my guns. Imagine living in a country where the government can dictate how many children you have. Well, China had been doing that going back to 1980. China's ruling Communist Party dictated that in order to slow down population growth, because China had so many people that its economy was having was struggling to keep up, every married couple could only have one kid. And for decades, almost all married couples followed that policy. And it probably did help China economically, but there were brutal tactics to enforce this. I'm not saying nobody was ever able to successfully get around it, but women were forced to get abortions. Women were forced to be sterilized. It got to be very unpopular. Just imagine, you've got one kid. Maybe you had a boy and you wanted to have a girl or vice versa. The government's saying, no, you can't do that because the larger interests of the state. Okay, so um, by 2013, because the population got older and older and older, which, by the way, was utterly predictable, China said, okay, you can have two children. And oh, so it was two years later, 
after the Chinese recognized this, that uh, 2015, two children. And now China's saying, all right, you can have three children because the Chinese population is going to shrink and that's going to hurt it as a country because they don't have a replacement level. In other words, more people are dying in China than being born. It's as simple as that. But it turns out a lot of families, according to reporting uh, from there, uh, don't want to have two or especially three kids uh, because they're worried about not being able to provide for them economically and maybe other things in society as well. So it just is a reminder how much control there is in these totalitarian societies. And finally, on a slightly lighter note, looking at the world stage, story number six. Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of Britain, just got married. Why is that interesting? I will tell you. Boris Johnson marrying his longtime fiance Carrie Simons. S-Y-M-O-N-D-S. I hope I haven't mispronounced it. Uh, so a week ago, the Prime Minister and his fiance sent friends save the date cards for a wedding that was going to be held next month, in July, according to several British newspapers. But on Saturday, without telling hardly anybody, they had a stealth ceremony at Westminster Cathedral in London. They got married. Spokesman for the PM's office confirmed this. The Prime Minister and Ms. Simons were married yesterday afternoon in a small ceremony at Westminster Cathedral. The couple will celebrate their wedding with family and friends next summer. So, this has been an interesting kind of relationship. Um, he's 56, she's much younger. She, uh, he moved it, they already lived together. He moved, when he was elected Prime Minister, Boris Johnson moved into 10 Downing with his girlfriend before his divorce from his second wife had been completed. Um, Carrie gave birth to a son, Wilfred, last spring. So they're already living together. They've already got a kid together. But then what happened, the, the, the son was born only weeks after Boris Johnson got COVID-19, and he had a very serious case. He was hospitalized. Um, uh, Simons is 33, by the way. She also... Uh, got COVID, so they've had a rough go of it. And she's gotten some criticism over refurbishing of the Prime Minister's official headquarters, which is right next door, I think uh, 11 Downing Street, uh, whether the furnishings are too expensive and where the money came from, you know, typical kind of scandal. So they only had about 30 guests there you know, who were all notified on very short notice. Um, and even though the wedding hadn't been confirmed until it was, certain world leaders found out about it and gave their congratulations to Boris Johnson. He is the first British prime minister uh, to be married while in office since Lord Liverpool married Mary Chester in 1822. I mean, I just love the long uh, and illustrious history of the UK. All right, so now they're married and uh, they both had COVID, and um, they've got a child. And, you know, I mean, they almost sort of eloped, except they didn't go away. They had a secret wedding. Well, you know, you could, British tabloids go crazy over this. Ordinarily, you have, like, you know, the, the photos, and sometimes, as in the case of some of the royal relatives, you know, the, uh, like, UK magazines like Hello, or sometimes there's People magazine here, they get the f exclusive first rights, the picture of the pregnant princess 
or, you know, the Duchess, first baby pictures from the Duchess and all that. Uh, look, Boris Johnson is an interesting character. He's just a character. He was a big character when he was mayor of London. He was a character when he worked for tabloids. And he's a character now. So I will congratulate the happy couple uh, out of a spirit of Anglo-American friendship. Thank you all for listening. Since it's been a few days since I've been here, took yesterday off, I'll just remind you, you can get this podcast on your Amazon device or at Amazon Music or at Google Podcasts or at Apple iTunes. Back here tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.